0: Welcome to Queer Devotions from Rainbow Faith and Freedom. I'm Bridget Palufry. Today on the show, we have a very exciting guest, Dr. Travis Salway. He is a social epidemiologist whose research investigates health inequities in the context of stigma. In 2019, he presented his work to the Canadian House of Commons' standing committee on health in the context of their historic study on queer and trans health in Canada. More recently, he released a report along with co-authors on the continued prevalence of conversion therapy in Canada with some pretty shocking findings. At RFF, we've been focused on how conversion therapy is one of the continued markers of faith-based transphobia and homophobia in Canada. And so we were really excited to talk to Travis and learn more about this work in the context of this broad network of folks fighting conversion therapy. Some exciting news before we get into the interview, we are releasing a zine this September called Pandemic Processes, where we will have artists responding to this theme, all about the spiritual, internal meanderings of the mind during COVID, uh, during time apart, and sort of thinking about different spiritualities and theologies in this time period. And so we are very excited to show you more of their art. It is amazing. Um, And just keep an eye out for that. With that said, here is the interview. So, Travis Solway, thank you so much for joining us today, and thank you for all of the work you're doing.
1: I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: So, the first question is, we just want to get at definitions. So, in your work, you've noted that conversion therapy takes on many different forms, and also the definitions can vary a lot based on context and who's using them. So maybe that's the federal government or the conversion therapy practitioners themselves. Uh, So could you just share with us the challenge of identifying these practices and give us your own definition of them?
1: Yeah, that's an excellent question and a really important place to start. First, I'll just say um, my answer, the most direct answer to your question, but then I'll explain a little bit about the challenges we've experienced in arriving at a definition. So I think the most important common trait of all conversion practices is that they start with the premise that some sexual orientations or gender identities are preferred and um and other sexual orientations or gender identities can be avoided through some sort of practices. And more specifically, it's the cisgender heterosexual uh, identities that are preferred and and that are encouraged through these practices. Now, the reason why this has been a challenge is that uh, when conversion practices first became prominent, um, going back 40, 50 years, they were very mm. much, um, following in the footsteps of, um, previously discredited psychological practices that mm. actually thought we could change intrinsic sexual orientation, uh, or gender identity. Over time, uh, if we think about kind of the born this way era, <laughs> thanks to Lady Gaga, um, <laughs> you know, really popular, uh, understandings, um, regardless of whether people are supportive or not of, of 2SLGBTQ people, um, people have come to understand sexual orientation and, and gender identity as something that's innate and maybe cannot be changed. Therefore, um, contemporary practices more typically um, take a page from um, uh, addiction recovery programs, mm-hmm. um, cognitive behavioral therapy, approaches that would say, we can't change this thing about you. You will probably, um, in the case of conversion practices targeting sexual orientation, you will probably always be attracted to members of the same sex or gender. But what we can do is we can coach you on ways to live a life that's consistent with your values so we can help you avoid the temptation of sex mm. with other men we can help avoid we can help you avoid the temptation of looking at gay pornography um, and that's why we've we've, we've we've really struggled with the definition put forward in Bill c6 and the definition that many politicians um, use which is that this is all about um, taking some kind of outdated barbaric practice like electroshock and changing mm. someone's Um, intrinsic sexual orientation. And and the reality is that's just, it's not to say that that isn't still happening, but that's not the most common form of conversion therapy that we hear about in our research.
0: Mm. You've kind of given us the background around how other folks are identifying it. What is, you know, if you could give us two sentences or a couple sentences to really describe uh, these practices.
1: Well, I would say... um, I, so in terms of the, the method or form, it could range from um, prayer to um, uh, um, self-directed um, uh, reflections and, and exercises about beliefs and behaviors to um, group-based supports. A lot, of them, a lot of these practices do happen in group settings um, so that um, group members can learn from one another about what works and what doesn't work around avoiding um, you know, whatever those triggers may be for, for, um, uh, let's say acting on same-sex attraction. I should note that in the case of conversion practices targeting trans people, um, we do see a lot more of that happening in the healthcare system. And, and there's a variety of reasons for that. I mean, one of them is that trans people, who are seeking healthcare um, to affirm their uh, gender identity um, will, will often need to talk to um, a, a practitioner in the healthcare system. And so that just means there's more opportunities for them to bump a, bump up against someone who has uh, transphobic or anti-trans beliefs. Um, but we also know that, you know, looking at the history and the trajectory of um, societal attitudes toward LGBTQ people, um, we, we've actually um, come a lot, Further, when it when it comes to homophobia and anti-gay and lesbian attitudes, than we have uh, in terms of transphobia and 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 anti-trans attitudes, and we can see that in the debates over Bill C six, where a lot of anti-trans hate was expressed. We can see that in the U S., which you know is is not so dissimilar to Canada, uh, where a lot of anxieties around um, you know um, validating um, uh, adolescents' gen gender identity, self-determined gender identities, um, mm. is resulting in these um, statewide bans on, on um, for instance, participation of trans people, trans youth in sports. So, um, you know, I do think uh, we're, there, there are some important differences between conversion practices targeting uh, queer people and conversion mm. practices targeting trans people.
0: Mm. Thank you. Thank you for describing that. And I mean, one of the main impetuses for speaking with you is to talk about uh, your landmark study with you and a team of researchers um, that was released this Pride Month, um, showcasing the continued prevalence of conversion therapy in Canada um, with some pretty shocking numbers. So what can you tell us about the prevalence of conversion therapy and also in relation to people's different identities. So you mentioned uh, trans folks versus queer folks. Um, so yeah, how, do, how does that show up based on different identities as well?
1: Yeah, great question. So uh, this is a study that was uh, led by the community-based research center, um, which is um, an organization based in Vancouver, but an, a, a national organization that's been around uh, over 20 years. And the CBRC runs a survey called the Sex Now Survey, which is a biannual survey of um, uh, gay, bisexual, queer um, men, inclusive of trans and cis men. Um, and we specifically added questions about conversion practices to the 2019 survey because we mm-hmm. knew that the federal government was working on uh, conversion therapy ban. And we wanted to get um, some estimates of the number of people affected um, to help the, the policymakers and legislators, um, uh, you know, really fine tune their their work. Mm-hmm. So we found that one out of every 10 um, uh, queer men had experienced conversion therapy in their lifetime. Uh, that translates to about 50,000 uh, people in Canada. Um, so the actual number is probably uh, a lot higher because mm-hmm. that survey does not include, unfortunately, uh, queer, queer women. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, you had asked about what we found about kind of the unevenness of experiences mm-hmm. of conversion practices across identities. So this, we did uh, look, we did, you know, we, we typically in, in the research that I do in the CBRC does, we, we, we try to understand that, um, Health and, and and social concerns that affect queer people um, may differ depending on um, whether you're you're trans or cis, whether you're or non-binary, whether you're um, indigenous, uh, whether you're a, a person of color, um, and indeed we found that conversion practices were um, were were most prevalent, were most common among young people. So this is important because mm-hmm. it tells us that uh, conversion practices have not gone away um despite popular right. narratives to the contrary they're uh-huh. very much uh still around and in fact most impacting uh, our youngest uh groups um we we did find uh, um the the largest differences were between trans and non-binary people and cis people and that again we think probably speaks to um the additional stigma and additional stress uh, exp- that trans and non-binary people need to endure um and and the additional um places where they might um, unfortunately come into contact with people who espouse uh, anti-trans attitudes. Um, And then, yes, differences um, by uh, race or ethnicity, Um, higher um, um, rates of experience of conversion practices among Indigenous and other uh, people of color. Um, And in the case of Indigenous um, respondents we worked with, um, we have a a team at CBRC called the Two-Spirit Dry Lab, and we worked with members of that lab to discuss and interpret those findings very carefully. Um, But as we're painfully reminded during Indigenous History Month um, with, you know, multiple... Um, findings of mass graves at residential schools across Canada. Um, the residential school system very much was um, um, a, a function of Christian churches and the state, really um, uh, quite um, violently uh, inserting themselves into into Indigenous communities and lives. And so um, we we suspect that there is a legacy um, there uh, in terms mm. of um, um, uh, you know how we have used. Uh, interventions in indigenous communities um, to strip indigenous people of their cultures and traditions, which also means um, enforcing Western European binary gender roles. So that mm-hmm. that that does kind of. Um, you know, create, if, if not if the exact conditions of conversion practices certainly makes conversion practices uh, more appealing. And then, mm-hmm. um, and then in the case of people of color, we, we, we don't know precisely, but we did also see um, uh, higher prevalence of conversion practices among people who had immigrated to Canada. So it might be that people are coming from other um, countries or they're, they're, they're um, Parents or grandparents are coming from other countries where um, uh, anti-LGBTQ attitudes remain uh, quite prominent.
0: Mm-hmm. And and now shifting to sort of the religious basis of this practice and of, of these many practices. Um, so queer devotions, as I said, we're we're thinking about how do you confront the way religion is weaponized against 2SLGBTQ+, inclusion and equity. And something that was so striking to me as I was reading your study is just that you found that 67% of conversion therapy occurred within religious or faith-based settings, which is an astounding number. And also then the other <laughs> one-third of that is in secular settings. Um, so can you break down this number for us and, and just talk about why you think religious groups have such a strong monopoly here?
1: yeah I'm um, by no means an expert on the history of conversion practices, but um, you know relying on the work of, of uh, other scholars, my understanding of how this all came about um, and there is a a, a, um, a very good telling of the history of this in, um, in in a podcast out of the U.S. called Unerased. You might be familiar mm. with it. Um, it's kind of, um, I, I don't know if I, podcast is the right word. It's sort of a, a, a four or five episode series and, cool. and they really dig into that history. But my understanding is that, you know, if we go back to the 1960s, 1970s, um, in the era of Evelyn Hooker's um, really um, uh, f- foundational study about what um, can we know about the different psychological profiles of um, gay, gay or lesbian people or um, often in, as psychologists would refer to us as homosexuals at the time. What can we, what right. can we infer about the different psychological profiles of homosexuals versus heterosexuals? Um, psychologists started to understand that the, the approach that they had taken in the Freudian era of, you know, oh, there's maybe something gone wrong in our childhood that needs to be remedied was really based mostly on, uh, on a dogma, on, on kind of on bias um, against gay and lesbian people and not really reflective of the science. So as psychologists and psychiatrists updated their science in the 1960s and 70s, uh, they came to a consensus and said, we have to stop, quote unquote, treating homosexuality as an illness. And that meant that by the 1970s and 80s, if you were a parent, and you had a child, and you were worried about this child, and I should say, just as in the 1970s and 80s, when parents were worried about their children being gay or lesbian or bisexual or queer, (laughs) trans, uh, you know, today, parents are saying very much the same thing. And I don't know that when parents Express that worry. It's that I don't want my child to be LGBTQ, too. But I think it's more that I don't know what's going to happen to my child. Are are they going to have a safe and happy and and you know uh, um, satisfying life um, in a world that that is quite hostile toward them? And so part of you know we'll come to this I suspect later. But part of what we need to do here is interventions that you know support parents and to understand that there is a pathway to health and happiness for their children. But, but I think, you know, it's so context matters. So in the, in the 1970s and eighties, parents who would have previously gone to a psychologist to say, Hey, I think my child is a bit funny. Can you, can you treat them? Would now have to look elsewhere. And Mm -hmm. a, a number of, um, uh, yes, Christian um, institutions, um, particularly in the U.S., kind of uh, saw a market here, for lack of a better word, and they um, and, and they and they, they uh, and they entered that market and they opened up opportunities. Um, sometimes for money, sometimes not. Uh, but really, to capture uh, these parents and 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 their kids who had anxieties about their sexuality, and so I think what what, what that sixty seven percent statistic is telling us is that 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 legacy of investment in um you know the 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 kind of the large institutions that we saw spring up in the nineteen eighties and nineties, places like Exodus International, which was a you know a, a quite a, um, a Prolific uh, um, creator and exporter of conversion practices, uh, you know that they really found their niche, and and so we—that's what we, I think, we still see in Canada. Um, now, I should say that um, we don't have. Um, really clear advertised uh, religious based conversion practices or um, as clearly advertised these days uh, you know exodus international doesn 't have the same um, visibility as it once had, um, but um, so it 's been hard to actually find these practices, but um, with with um, you know some extensive research. Talking to um, survivors of conversion practices, um, talking to people who really keep close tabs on the practitioners, we see that they are, in fact, uh, still uh, operating in Canada, um, albeit a little bit more under the radar.
0: Goodness, and and yeah, that's the last part I really wanted to get to is this whole under the radar problem. Um, and you have been very involved on the federal level to bring a ban on conversion therapy and and also presenting at the House of Commons Standing Committee on Health for 2SLGBTQ plus communities. Um, And something that came out of that was just this feeling that um, it's a widely discredited practice in healthcare settings. And so it's less likely that someone would go to a medical authority, um, and probably more likely, as your research indicates, to go to a religious group. And so uh, you know, for example, the generous space ministries who presented alongside you, um, who have been fighting against uh, conversion therapy, w- noted that, you know, in the religious settings, it's difficult to expose, diff- difficult to re- prevent and difficult to affect by legislation. So while, as you say, this bill um, is very critical, you've also called for a multi-pronged approach, um, knowing that just, uh, you know, a simple ban is not going to, you know, immediately overnight change uh this practice. So could you, yeah, could you just kind of describe what your, what approach you've called for, um, and how you see uh, all the different kind of sectors, as we were mentioning, working together to to finally end conversion therapy?
1: Yeah, I thanks. That's a big question, but an important question, a, bit, yeah. a really important <laughs> question. Um, before I answer it, I just want to um, gently correct something yes, that you said. So I appreciate all the credit you're giving me for my involvement in research on the topic of conversion practices. Um, but um, by no means am I the one, or did I even have a major role in, in compelling the government to act on this? It was, in fact, um, the advocacy work of of many conversion therapy survivors mm-hmm. in Canada mm-hmm. who who did this. Um, so you know, I, I, I I'll just name a few. Uh, nice. But there's more than this. I mean, uh, so Peter Guidic here in, in BC has done uh, really tireless work on this topic. Matt Ashcroft uh, in in Ontario, um, and and my close collaborator Erica Muse um, has really brought light to um, uh, conversion practices that target trans people, and mm. and she was instrumental in the uh, in the um, Province of Ontario's ban on conversion practices. So really, it's it's you know it's it's a lot of people who endured these practices and spoke out over and over and over again until finally the federal government did something in 2019. Um, so, um, all to say, um, yes, the federal government decided to act, and and I can't say whether or not that bill. Um, you know, how much we should or shouldn't prioritize that bill. Mm-hmm. I, I've talked to a lot of um, survivors of conversion practices who feel that it's very important that we have that bill Um if for no other reason than as a really clear uh indication to all Canadians that mm. these practices are completely incompatible with Canadian values and i think that alone has a really uh strong and, and 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 important effect um that said as 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 you're noting um we should never um go into any piece of legislation uh, whether it's conversion pra- a practice ban or any other um uh, you know, federal or provincial legislation and expect it to be a silver bullet. Um, so I'm a, I'm a public health scientist. So um, mm. it's my job. <laughs> I think of it as my job to, um, I, 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 I'm also a social worker and I'm, I use community-based approaches. So I, I try to listen to communities to hear mm. what do we, wh- where do we need to act? And then I look for the evidence so I need to know, you know, okay, where where do we where does community want us to go? But mm-hmm. also, how can I look at epidemiological evidence from other places um, to understand? how much these, um, these intersectoral actions that we're wanting to take, how mm-hmm. effective are they going to be? And I, 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 I'm, I'm sad to say that the current state of evidence on, on what will prevent conversion practices is very poor. We don't really know. Uh, uh, we're, we're, in, we're still in early days and we don't really know. Um, you know, it's just a few years ago that the first country passed a ban. Uh, this was Malta, we have other countries very recently passing bans. Um, uh, Germany um, recently passed a ban. Uh, we have uh, a few states and provinces that have passed bans, but we don't actually have uh, any um, evaluation of these mm. bans. So we, mm-hmm. we passed them, um, but now we need to know um, how have they been enforced? Right. And, um, and, and in addition to how they've been enforced, how have they deterred conversion practices? And until we know that we should be very suspicious of any attempt on the part of politicians to claim, um, uh, you know, the promise or the effectiveness of a, a single legislative ban. So I think, um, what else do we need? Well, um, we need uh, to use the the opportunity that's that's provided to us by opening this bill and saying hey let's talk about conversion practices mm-hmm. that in and of itself is really a, a really uh, important moment and then we need to do work uh, first within institutions so um, y- y- I know that you know you understand this um, very well from your work at RFF but we you know we we need to go to leaders of faith-based institutions and say, I understand that you may have um, previously historically um, maintained a belief that um, um, queer or trans uh, people are not um, welcome or included or cannot be visible in your church. Mm. Um, but there is another path forward, which is to create affirming spaces. And, um, but that does require being explicit. Um, generally, what we know from research in all kinds of settings is that we as queer people will not disclose who we are Mm -hmm. and we will, or sometimes we won't even go to a place. Like I might avoid a family gathering entirely if I think someone there is going to um, implicitly or explicitly be biased against me. So, um, So you need to be real explicit. That people are welcome here, um, and if and if they're not, then you also need to be explicit about that, so that people can avoid it for safe of, sake of safety. And then mm-hmm. we as Canadians need to wrap around those people and say, you know, if you're not welcome in this um, religious space, you're welcome over here, and and we're fortunate to live in a country where the vast vast majority of Canadians. Are in support Mm -hmm. of queer and trans people and two spirit people and are opposed to conversion practices. And we need to let people know that. So Mm -hmm. that kind of leads to my, and I should say, you know, as you said earlier, um, fine, we see in the Sex Now uh, CBRC study that the majority of this is happening in faith based settings, but that's still a a large minority happening in secular settings. So we also need to work with healthcare (laughs) providers. We also need to work with, you know, um, recreational groups, community centers, wherever these um, other. Um you know uh even subtly anti LGBTq 2 people are operating we need to uh, we need to go to those spaces and make sure we're we're sending a clear message uh to queer and trans and two spirit youth um and then the last thing I would say we need to do is um we need to work with parents and and we need to actually um you know uh find places in um educational and extracurricular um spaces uh where Youth may um, get the message, either explicitly get the message that Mm. there's something disordered about being queer trans or implicitly get the message that they can't talk about it um, and so we think there's a few settings based on our conversations with you know our community partners and conversion therapy survivors a few spaces where we think we still have work to do so here in British Columbia we have an excellent program called soG123 that integrates um, uh, LGBTQ 2 affirming messages in schools yeah. um, it does not t- it does not touch sex sex ed uh, so we'd like to know um, how do sex ed. Uh, teachers, how how do they bring up this topic? Yeah. How do they um, send unequivocal messages to their students that um, that uh, queer sexualities are completely compatible with mm-hmm. <laughs> with healthy mm-hmm. sexuality, um, and you know, really make sure that if there is a young person in Canada who may unfortunately go through adolescence and never be told that if they are queer, trans, two-spirit, that they're fine, that they're going to be supported. We need to remedy that. And that sounds like a huge task, but it's actually something that everyone in Canada can play a part in. Mm -hmm. Um, I think uh, people sometimes are hesitant to um, speak out on this topic because they don't want to say the wrong thing. But there's one right thing that everyone can say, which is like, if you are (laughs) <laughs> you know my family <laughs> member you 're my friend you 're my social contact you 're my student, and you are trans you 're queer you 're two spirit you 're loved you 're important mm. you 're wanted and that that message alone is really powerful there 's no there 's no limit to the number of times we can say that you know say it on social media, say it yes. at family dinner um because if you don 't say it and you hold back, you run the risk of having the person uh, around that that may be trans or queer around you um Leave that space thinking maybe they shouldn't uh, come mm. out, um, maybe maybe they shouldn't um, you know explore this identity. Um, and we know from all kinds of research that um, that 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 missed opportunity has huge costs. And that's really what mm. we're talking about with conversion practices here. We're talking about an intervention that um, denies people the opportunity to really uh, you know explore themselves and their identities as every Canadian deserves to do.
0: Mm. Absolutely. And na- it, naming that and naming that to others, um, I mean, it, I was, as you were mentioning and naming the the really important work that survivors have done to bring this forward and just thinking about how much internalized shame and stigma um, that these practices lead to. And yeah, just thinking about that incredible ba- bravery and um, in naming it and bringing it forward and how folks who are allies can, can honor the fact that, you know, there's, so much stigma and shame to even speak about it in public. And then for, for folks to say, I see you, I love you. Mm-hmm. Um, to be able to do that on their end is, is so crucial. And yeah, <laughs> yeah, this, this stuff is, I mean, it's obviously it's, as a can, as, as a country we're we're so committed and I think you've said this elsewhere to the belief that, Oh, you know, we have this awesome, Pride March and we're, you know, our queer TV shows and Dan Levy and like, you know, like there's a lot that's, that that's to celebrate, but um, your research is showing us that, you know, we can have these conversations with our family members and our worship communities in schools. And um, yeah, I, I just, I really thank you. And is there anything else you'd like to add before we close today?
1: No, I think you've, I think you've hit, uh, really, the most important points in my mind, and um, you know, just to lastly to say, uh, for people who are st- who are still feeling like scratching their head, like mm-hmm. is this really still a thing? Right. <laughs> um, a lot of a lot of survivors, a lot more survivors, in you know, in, especially in the context of Bill C six, have come out to share their experiences. And as you're right, it's that takes a tremendous amount of courage because you're you're admitting you're 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 um, revealing something that was probably traumatic. Mm-hmm. You know and some and that is sometimes disbelieved, and we know this from uh, you know look at the experiences of sexual assault survivors who mm-hmm. you know want want to tell their story but will find people who doubt them so I think that that there's a lot of power in those stories and um uh, my friends at no Conversion Canada um have begun uh, compiling some of them mm-hmm. on their website, so that 's a place to go, but I would say, yeah, if you are. Um, if you're new to this topic, take the time to read and listen to some of the stories of of the survivors. It's 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 not easy mm-hmm. <laughs> listening, mm-hmm. but it really is important.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. I, I will link to that in the show notes. Um, Great. Make thank sure you. we highlight those stories. Yeah, thank you for pointing us to that. Um, as I said, this has been such a pleasure and privilege to, to have a chance to dig through this with you. Um, and again, thank you for the work that you're doing.
1: Well, thanks for the work that you're doing, and um, it's been a pleasure to to talk.
0: Thank you again for joining into Queer Devotions. We've got some more programming coming this August and this fall as we're partnering with the Tegan and Sarah Foundation, and we are very excited to showcase the work, activism, of queer women and girls and their relationship to spirituality and religion. And so um, stay tuned for more information on that.